You are listening to Kaleidoscope, Reflections on Islam. Kaleidoscope is a show sponsored by Stanford University's Abbasi Program in Islamic Studies. And I'm your host, Ambreen Bhatti. On our show, we explore how people engage with Islam today. For this episode, we're headed to Sudan. Ummah. You could spell that U-M-M-A-H if you wanted to spell it in English, but it's an Arabic word. According to the Oxford Dictionary of Islam, it means, and I'll quote now, Muslim community. A fundamental concept in Islam expressing the essential unity and theoretical equality of Muslims from diverse cultural and geographical settings. The essential unity of Muslims. Religion is, of course, what unites Muslims. Religious ties bind Muslims in America to Muslims in Russia, Muslims in Pakistan to Muslims in Palestine, Muslims in Spain to Muslims in Senegal. What happens when those religious ties get invoked for economic purposes? How does that play out? Last summer, with the support of the Abbasi program, a graduate student in anthropology named Nasreen El Amin went to Sudan to find out. She spent most of her time in the Jazeera. It's kind of a triangle that's nestled between the white and the blue Niles. It's very fertile. Um, and the British, actually, in the 1920s, turned that particular area into the largest centrally managed irrigation scheme, agricultural scheme, in the world to grow and extract cotton, essentially. We, between 1920 and the 1950s, grew cotton that kind of fueled the British uh, Industrial Revolution, if you will. And, um, you know, when people hear about Egyptian cotton, they don't realize that a lot of it actually came from Sudan. Um, and, you know, my family members, um, if I trace it back, a lot of them worked on, on the on the Jazeera scheme, like the extended family. Um, and then after independence, it continued being run by the government until really quite recently, there were different parts of it. There were moments where the government tried to privatize the scheme. But until 2005, it was run as a kind of government-run scheme, and people would pay taxes and, as a result, and, also, and, and as a result would get extension services from the government. Is the word scheme throwing you off? It kind of threw me off. So just think about what we're talking about as an irrigation project that distributes water from the Nile through a series of canals and ditches to fields in the most fertile part of Sudan. As Nisreen said, the project began under the British in the 1920s, but was eventually taken over by the Sudanese government. What happened in 2005? In 2005, the Sudanese government um, passed a set of laws that with that, dis that, that withdrew all of their agricultural extension services, so people weren't getting fertilizers, um, pesticides, seeds all the things that you need to, you know, be able to grow effective, grow food effectively. That sounded like a huge deal to me. So, of course, I asked Nasreen to tell me what she thought was going on. Well, I think they were paving the way for, uh, to, to attract foreign investors in agriculture. You know, they saw the regime in 2005 is also when... Uh, the peace agreement was signed between South Sudan and North Sudan. And I think at that moment, the regime knew that the South would likely secede because the, the interim period between 2005 and 2011, at the end of that, 
there was a referendum and, and that was set at that time where um, the South could, Southerners could vote for whether or not they wanted to secede. And so anticipating that the South would likely secede and that it would take about 75% of its oil resources with it, um, the regime basically decided they needed to come up with a with a scheme to to make money, you know, and this wasn't one of the ways to do it. So they decided to essentially force people to go into debt, right? Um, and then and and then they were kind of willing buyers. So um, after a year or two of these laws um, kind of taking their effect, people ended up not getting enough water onto their land, onto their plots, um, and their yields. In, within a year even dropped to half of what they would, were usually producing, and that forced so many people into debt that people started selling. Land in that part of, you know, and really, in, I'm sure in, in all of Sudan, has it's, it's much more than just uh, sort of, you know, we have to look at it beyond its kind of economic utility. It has a lot of um, value, uh, cultural value, sort of value that has to do with people's legacies and histories in the region. And so it's it's a very difficult decision for someone to decide to sell. Um, you it really has to it means that people have you know hit rock bottom, and so people started selling. The government um, then started buying the land at about a sixth of what it was actually worth. The government had plans for that land. The purposefully trying to solicit investments from people within the Muslim world. In other words, from the Saudis, Emiratis, the Gulf Arab states, Jordanians, Egyptians. The investors and the government uh, talk about these investments is by, by talking about Muslim brotherhood and Muslim solidarity. The Saudis will often say, you know, for us this is all about um, lifting Sudan up and uh, pulling Sudan out of poverty and and about making the Muslim ummah self-sufficient in relation to the West and its potentially exploitative investors. And so, and the government um, sort of shares that rhetoric as well. I don't know if either of them really believe it. I doubt they do. But it's really all about being able to, I think, for them to sell it to the, to, to the, to the, to the Sudanese people, essentially. That's how they're trying to sell it, right? I don't, again, I don't think anybody buys it, certainly not in terms of um, the Sudanese. But, you know... Um, and it's also a little bit sort of to, I think, to, sh- to show the West that, hey, we can make these connections and kind of strengthen the Muslim ummah in relation to you, um, you know, in terms of economic ties. Uh, in a way, it's a little bit of a response to the fact that Sudan has been placed on this terrorist list, right? So they're, they're saying, okay, you, pl- you think of us as terrorists. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to build economic ties um, that we're going to frame in, in sort of religious terms um, with, with people who don't think of us as terrorists, who think of us as brothers. Some of the biggest skeptics are folks who know a thing or two about religion themselves, Sufi sheikhs. These sheikhs, or leaders, are often sought out for help with things like domestic problems or, you know, health issues for which people want spiritual guidance, that kind of thing. But as one sheikh told Nasreen, more and more people have started to come for help with problems that can be traced in some way back to the passage of the 2005 laws. Things like disputes between farmers or tensions in the home due to all the debt. 
For the Sufi sheikhs who are political, this has been an opportunity to challenge the government, and they've done it using the government's own tools. Nasreen told me about one such sheikh and the arguments he's been making. One of the things that he said, which really struck me in, in um, 2013, is he kind of de- publicly declared that land in the Jazeera and elsewhere in Sudan was the property of God and only God, and so this couldn't be leased to investors. You know, basically, I think what he was invoking here is that what they're doing is illegal, right? Not just illegal in terms of the law, but you know, sort of sinful in terms of uh, you know, in, in relation in terms of religion. And um, given that the government considers it's itself a, a you know an Islamist regime, um, that was a fairly it's a powerful way to to put it. What exactly is he trying to do? He's sort of exposing the hypocrisy behind investors making claims based on um, based on religion and or, or you know invoking those religious ties to you know Muslim Brotherhood of solidarity of pulling Sudan out of poverty and saying no actually you're doing exactly the opposite you're um, essentially alienating people from you know it's in some ways a bit of a Marxist critique but um, you know that that you're uh, you know, removing people from what get their livelihoods, right? That you're that you're dispossessing them of the things that are most important to them, both in terms of um, economic value, but also in terms of kind of spiritual, um, you know, symbolic value in their life. And he's also saying, you know, land is divine in the sense that the people who work the land, the stewards of the land, the people who care for it, are the ones who deserve to have access to it, but those who are just exploiting it don't. The sheikh isn't alone. Nasreen also told me about the many forms of resistance ordinary Sudanese are showing to attempts to acquire their land by foreign investors. For those stories, I'm sorry, but you'll have to wait for her dissertation. For now, I want to leave you with Nasreen's reflections on why, exactly, she does this work. I think as a Muslim living in America, we, we get bombarded with images of, of kind of religious conflict and, and on the one hand, um, but also as an African of like just Sudan as a place that's kind of a troubled spot that's, um, you know, where people are, I don't know how to explain it, but just as a pl- as a place of you know of desperation of um, that has been kind of torn apart by war. And while it is true that we have been torn apart by war, we never get to see communities, you know, fighting against injustice um, and and really kind of reclaiming what it is to be Sudanese in a way. And I think for me, that's what I guess motivates me to continue doing this research because I feel like it can challenge a lot of the representations of Sudan that we see in the media and even in academia on some level.